scripture reading is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, ducks swim and fly in the air, but you already knew that. Bears roam around in the woods eating berries, and if they're having a good day, maybe take down a young deer and add some meat to their omnivore diet, but you probably knew that too. Snakes slither on the ground, and if they're having a bad day, sometimes get run over by a car or attacked by a mongoose. The point is, ducks do what ducks do, bears do what bears do, snakes do what snakes do, and dead people do what dead people do. Now, we don't expect a duck to prowl around the forest and take down a deer. We don't expect to see a flock of bear flying through the sky, though that'd be fairly awesome, I think. Kids, look at the bear, you know. We don't expect that. We don't expect to see a snake lacing up the track spikes and running in a track meet. And we most certainly do not expect to see dead people acting as though they're alive. And I'm starting here this morning because as we pick back up in our series through the book of Ephesians, we enter into what is a very painful and graphic picture of lostness. In fact, I I, I do have to tell you just right up front, this is not going to be an easy or feel-good sort of sermon. But I will say, if we'll, if we'll hang in there with the hard stuff, if, if, if we really come to understand this passage, I would submit to you that we're going to have a much better understanding of the misery of being lost and the amazing grace of being saved. Now, what's more, we'll better understand why it was essential that Jesus came. And we'll certainly have a better understanding as to why cultural Christianity is so dangerous as you have dead people thinking they're alive, actually being told they're alive by their churches for no good reason other than the fact that they made a profession of faith at some point. So there's a lot here for all of us in this text, but we're going to need to buckle up because our inspired writer is going to take us on a journey of lostness that quite frankly is pretty offensive to a lot of lost people. And truth be told, pretty offensive to people even in our churches today. So, let's remind ourselves right here at the outset, 
this is God's holy and inspired word. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again as a pastor, I don't write the mail, I simply deliver it. And so, let's see what God's holy and inspired word has to say to us from this text today. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 1 through the first part of verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The first point on the outline is the first point here in the text, that is, you were dead. And as we proceed in the text, we'll see that this applies to every single human being. The question for you is whether it's a were, past tense, or an are, present tense. Here Paul's writing to Christians, and so it's past tense, you were dead. And while Paul will sometimes use this word to speak of physical death, Here he's clearly speaking metaphorically. He's speaking of that state that every single unbeliever finds themselves in. Theologians will often speak of the doctrine of the total depravity of man or the total inability of man. This would be what's described for us in Genesis 6 shortly after the fall where the inspired writer says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here it's important that we understand that we were born this way, and that we act in accordance with how we were born. And and I get that first from the modifying clause in your trespasses and sins. Now, the plural trespasses or transgressions, depending on your translation, draws attention to individual acts of sin. It's referring to what a person has done in transgressing the will and law of God with their very actions. Now, the term sins takes our minds back to Genesis 3, to that very first rebellion of mankind against God. And in bringing these two words together, Paul's giving us a comprehensive account of human evil, showing us the idea of the fullness and variety of our sinful past. Commentators will sometimes spend time on the word in, in your trespasses and sins. And they'll ask questions like, is that to be understood of in, sort of in the sphere of, or because of, because the word can mean either? Uh, I, I would submit to you the best answer there is yes. I think trying to separate those two ideas is probably slicing the pie a little finer than Paul intended. I mean, think about it. Outside of Christ, we were all dead in our sins, right? We were born within this very state. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so you see both aspects right there in that text, right? First, you see what's often referred to as original sin. Sin, original sin, where sin came into the world through one man, Adam, as our representative head. And so all mankind was, was born into this sin, right? We were, born, we, we were born with this inherited guilt of Adam's sin. We were born with a sin nature. We were born dead. We were stillborn, if you were, from a spiritual standpoint. We were all born dead. And yet, you can also say 
that we are dead because of our sin. Again, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And thus, you were dead because of your trespasses and sins, as Paul says, in which you once walked. Now, that word walk is another metaphorical word often used in the New Testament for live. Right? This, is, this is how, this is, this is where we walked outside of Christ in our sin. And the result is that we were all dead. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He, he wants us to be clear on the sinfulness of sin and the desperate state of being dead in our sin. And so he actually goes on to describe the slavery of those who are indeed dead in sin. Look back at verse 2 through the first part of verse 3. They'll all pick it up at the top again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. So here the picture that Paul paints is that those who are dead spiritually are actually being drug along as if by shackles and chains. They're, they're enslaved to three separate entities, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Some of you may recall back when we studied the Gospel of John together that I uh, said that John would sometimes use this term world neutrally, right? It's just, it's just a big place. Um, but more often than not, he used it negatively. He would use the term world as the fallen created order and enmity against God. And that's a very common way that the New Testament writers use this word. And it's certainly the way that Paul is using the term here. Those who are dead in their sin are depicted as sort of going along... And the world says, jump, and they say, how high? Right? The world tells you, this is how you must think about life, and you say, yes, Master. Whatever you tell me to think, I think. Whatever you tell me to do, I do. P.T. O'Brien says it well in his commentary. He says, quote, their behavior has been determined by the powerful influence of society's attitudes, habits, and preferences which are alien to God and His standards. Well, this is spot on and so remarkably dangerous. I mean, let's consider a real-world example because, because this is enlightening. Why is it that so many people buy in lock, stock, and barrel to so many ungodly ideas? Is it not because the world says, this is how you must think? Let me go back to our sermon from two weeks ago. Why is it that so many people, even within some of our churches, believe that today we must be careful with how we use pronouns? Don't say him or her, even though he was born a biological male or a biological female, they get to choose their own pronoun. But listen, doesn't the Word of God say God created them male and female, male and female, He created them? So now we're confronted with who our Master is. 
And those who are dead bow down to the world and say, yes, master. Right? For those who are dead, listen close, the world and the world's teaching is a higher authority than the Word of God. But that's not all, because Paul also says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were, in point of fact, not only following the world, but also following the devil. That's what he's talking about when he says, following the prince of the power of the air, that is, that's a further explanation, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Later in this book, in in chapter 6, he'll tell us Christians must resist the devil. He'll say, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They're clearly demonstrating that our battle is a spiritual battle against Satan and his minions. And so, here in chapter 2, using very similar language, he shows us why our battle is not against flesh and blood. And it is because those people who are following the course of this world and thus hating us often and, 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 and saying things about us because we stand against it. So, so there's the tension, there's the battle that Paul talks about in, in chapter 6 that he says is not against flesh and blood. And he's saying that because they are in fact following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, they are following the devil. So, just think how these go together. Do you ever wonder why the world tells us that such ungodly things are actually good? Why does the world tell us that something so beautiful and wonderful as physical intimacy, which was designed by God to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who come together in a covenant union called marriage, why does the world tell us that that can and in fact should be enjoyed by anyone and everyone who feels like it? I mean, think about that. This is designed by God as a covenant renewal ceremony every time a husband and wife come together. And it's glorious. It's wonderful. The Scripture says it's a preventative against lust and adultery. It's designed to bring two human beings into the closest possible union that two human beings can have. And yet our world, which is under the influence of Satan, tells us, if it feels good, do it. In fact, you might be harming yourself if if you don't. You're wired up this way. High school kids, go for it. We'll even have some health seminars to help you with some preventative measures. Friends with benefits, why not? How could this possibly get so twisted? Well, the answer is because dead people who live in a fallen world are under the influence of the devil. And those who are dead say, yes, master. That sounds good and right. That's what we'll do. And in fact, teach others to do the same. So Romans 1. I mean, think about this from a strategic standpoint for Satan. If your aim was to take down a Christ-honoring people, wouldn't this be a pretty strategic battlefield? 
Let's take down the union between one man and one woman. Let's take down marriage, the foundational structure God made with which to raise children. By the way, it's one of the reasons we're so thankful for family reform, one of our gospel partners. Thankful for all y'all do. Listen, Paul goes on. I know this is hard, but look at the text. He goes on and he shows us that our slavery is not just external. He tells us it's also internal. Notice that he brings in the flesh here. And this is a very important biblical word. It's used twice in this verse, though the ESV, for whatever reason, translates it flesh in the first instance and the body in the second. The NASB gets it right here. In context, the word flesh is not talking about the physical body per se. It's talking about humanity and its sinfulness, right? This this state of rebellion against God. You, You get a good feel for what Paul's talking about with the flesh in a text like Romans 8, where he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here he's adding another arena that lost people are actually in slavery. And it's to our own fallen passions. You might put it so bluntly as to say that outside of Christ, we are enslaved to our fallen animal instincts, right? The urges of the body and the mind that are natural to the fallen human nature. And this would go beyond just the sexual realm, though it would certainly include it. You might think of Paul's list in Galatians 5, where he compares the works of the flesh, to the fruit of the Spirit. There he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's telling you it's not an exhaustive list. He says, And so I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things, those who live like dead men, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so in Ephesians 2, Paul is showing us that the flesh, the world, and the devil are all working together. I like how Clinton Arnold says it. He says this, quote, Paul's teaching suggests that the explanation for our behavior is not to be found exclusively in human nature or in terms of the world's influence. Similarly, an exclusively demonic explanation for deviant behavior is unduly myopic. Rather, we should explain behavior on the basis of human nature, environment, and the demonic, all three simultaneously One part may play a leading role, but all three parts must be considered, end quote. 
So forget the old one-two punch. Notice what we're up against here. Outside of Christ, we're enslaved to this evil triumvirate of the world, the devil, and our own flesh. And, and they're, they're all in cahoots. I mean, think about it. The world tells you X, Y, and Z are all cool. And the world gets that from the devil working his magic. And our flesh says, oh, I want that. I, I need that. I got to have it. I want to be liked. I want to I be cool. I, I want to fit in. And so the devil and the world, they're in selling mode. Our flesh, it's in impulse buying mode. In the flesh, we're like that young stupid kid at the state fair who's got 20 bucks burning a hole in his pocket, chasing around that guy selling hot garbage, and he's like, I want that! I need that! I'll take three of those! I mean, can we just agree? This is a painful picture. But please don't miss that the Bible is giving us an entire worldview on lostness. It's giving us a picture of true reality from God's perspective by which to understand some of the craziness around us. And yet this picture of reality is not quite complete because Paul not only tells us that outside of Christ we were dead and in slavery, He also makes it painfully clear that we were staring the wrath of God directly in the face. We were like a deaf, blind man standing on a train track with a freight train bearing down upon us, and we're none the wiser, just going about doing our thing. Here comes the wrath of God. Look at verse 3. Though again, I'm going to start it from the beginning to see the whole thing flows. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Not only are all unbelievers dead and in slavery, they are also, very clearly in this text, standing under God's condemnation. Here then we see the consequence of our sin, which is the wrath of God. Paul tells us that outside of Christ, all are children of wrath by nature. They are referring to the condition to which we were born The point then is that while unbelievers are in fact culpable for their sinful cravings, desires, and thoughts, they have also, in point of fact, chosen the very path that's in agreement with the state into which they were born. Again, Romans 5, sin came into the world by one man, and so death spread to all because all sinned. And as a result, all of lost humanity stands under the righteous wrath of God. Here we must remember, God is holy. And while He is most certainly a God of love, as we'll see in the text next week, because He is holy, because He is righteous, because He is good, He cannot and will not stand by idly when people rebel against Him and spurn His love and mercy and grace. In fact, it doesn't take much by way of a mental exercise 
to recognize that God would not be good if He did not punish sin. I mean, just imagine for a moment that somebody murdered one of your family members, and some judge comes along and he says, you know what? The guy was born into a difficult state, and he's having a bad year. I mean, 2020 was hard on all of us. I'm just going to give him a pass. I'm going to let him walk. Well, I trust you wouldn't think such a judge was a good judge. See, God acts in a good and righteous way when He punishes sin in the present and most certainly on that last and final day when Jesus will come again and He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, unbeliever from believer for final and eternal judgment. And don't miss that this is again giving us an entire worldview here. This is not one of many narratives as to how one of many gods doles out punishment to some people who are under his jurisdiction who do some quote-unquote really bad things. No, the point here, as at the beginning of verse 3, is that just as we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, the point here is that every single person who has ever lived and dies in a state of unbelief stands under the righteous wrath of God. So this includes all of mankind, as Paul says. And I think this leads us into some really important application is I want to step back and sort of look at this text as a whole and think through some implications. The first thing that I want us to consider is that the ground is level here. Again, we're told this is where we all once lived. Before Christ, we were all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So no one avoided this. You're either there now, or you once lived there, and now thank God you don't. I mean, don't miss the dichotomy that Paul sets up throughout this text. Verse 1, you were dead. Verse 2, you once walked. Beginning of verse 3, among whom we all once lived. At the end of verse 3, you were by nature children of wrath. So the point here is that there's only two narratives that can possibly describe you. You either were a child of wrath, or you still are. So maybe the first question we need to think through together is, where are you now? Paul does say in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. The question is, does the state of spiritual deadness more aptly characterize your life than the state of being alive with Christ? Do the works of the flesh, that list that I read earlier from Galatians 5, more aptly characterize your life than the fruit of the Spirit? What he compares that to, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And listen, if you are outside of Christ, I would plead with you to consider the difference of what you think about yourself and what the Bible says about you. You might think, I don't know about all this Christianity stuff. I mean, I'm an intellectual, and to be honest, I, I choose to do whatever I want because I kind of think religion is man-made way of keeping us down, Right? See, the Bible says that the reality is it's no surprise that you think that way or any other excuse you might come up with not to follow Christ. 
It's no surprise that you think that way because you're dead spiritually. You're a slave to the world, the devil, and your own animal instincts, and so it's no surprise that you think, I'm all set. See, this is the difference between our perception of reality and ultimate reality that God's giving us through His Word. Our perception is, everything's fine. We're doing what we want to do, and in fact, no one can tell us what to do. The reality is, someone else is calling your own shots. In fact, Scripture says, you're like one being drugged along with a hook in his nose by the world, the devil, and the flesh. Our perception of reality is all is well. Not unlike people enjoying a sunny day on a beach before a huge tsunami hits. The reality is, the tsunami of God's judgment sits just offshore and it's heading right at you. And this drives home how terrible this state is. Sin is not merely a cut that needs a band-aid. Sin is a death that necessitates a resurrection. God, as we'll see next week, because of the great love with which He loved us, sent His Son Jesus to save rebels like us from the wrath we deserve. He sent Jesus to deal with our sin problem completely on the cross and to cause dead people to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, to live for Christ. And so if you're here this morning and your life still looks dead according to the Bible, I would plead with you to cry out to Jesus today. He died and rose so that you wouldn't have to stay dead and under the righteous wrath of God. For believers, maybe we start here. We need to rejoice. We need to praise Jesus every day that we're not still in this state, that we're not still dead. We need to rejoice and thank Him that we're not still in slavery. And we need to embrace the humble frame that should come with this as we most certainly did not save ourselves. The only thing you brought to the table, the only thing I brought to the table, was our own spiritual deadness and our correlating slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. But God saved us. As we'll see next week, God in His mercy made something out of nothing. And I want to end thinking about two related very important implications as to how this biblical teaching should shape our thinking and thus our lives. Now, I trust these might not be the first place that you'd go in your mind with a text like this, but I think it's so vital as we think about the life Jesus has called us to live right here in the buckle of the Bible belt. Remember, this passage teaches us that those outside of Christ are dead. They're spiritually dead And we see here in this text that dead people live like dead people. Remember the dichotomy Paul set up. You were, you once, you once, you were. And so as we consider the reality of this state of being spiritually dead, let us also consider the reality that while only God can raise those who are dead spiritually, He has chosen to do so in His wisdom and providence through the ordinary means of His people, those He's already made alive, sharing the good news with those who are still dead. I mean, think about it this way. 
if you were able to play at least a small role in bringing a loved one back from the dead physically, wouldn't you do it? Perhaps you have a young child who, God forbid, were to die. And you had the ability to play a tiny little role in bringing them back. You'd do everything you could, wouldn't you? I know you would. I would. We wouldn't sit back and do nothing. Here's where I'm pushing with this. This biblical teaching of the state of lost humanity should not only color how we think about sharing the gospel, right? We want to be faithful here. We want to share the gospel indiscriminately with anyone and everyone who God puts in our path, all the while knowing that He must work for anybody to be saved. And we, we, we want that to be true of us. But shouldn't this teaching, this is sort of the second implication related, shouldn't this teaching also then color what we're looking for when someone says they believe, right? Jesus doesn't say, go make decisions. He doesn't say, go make professors. He says, go make disciples. And by the way, teach them all that I commanded you. And I commanded you things like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, think about it. If you were coaching a baseball team and someone says, hey, coach, I've joined your team. And yet they never go by a a bat and a glove, they never come to any of your practices or games, would you think they're actually on the team? If you went to a funeral, how about this one? If you went to a funeral and someone had this big, beautiful, ornate, lovely sign on the side of the casket that said, he's not really dead, he's actually alive, and yet you sneak up and you, you touch the body and it's cold, you go for a pulse and there's nothing there. He doesn't care how great that sign is, right? You're clear. There's no signs of life. So this person is actually dead. The question then is, why is it that when someone says they believe but continue to live like they're dead, do we assume that they're alive? Why do we assume the dead are actually alive when there are no signs of life? trust you understand the point I'm trying to make. We live in a context where so many people say they believe, and yet so relatively few live as though the life-changing power of the Spirit of God is actually pulsating within them. So why is our typical MO to simply assume someone's come to faith because they prayed a prayer and signed a card? I mean, don't get me wrong. If someone's positive towards Jesus but still lives like a dead man, Maybe that's the beginning of God's work in there, right? We know how God works and, and this drawing process He actually takes us to. So maybe, maybe that's going on, but they haven't yet, as Jesus, using His words, they haven't yet crossed over from death to life. Oh, there might be a new God awareness that's going on, and, and that's something that we can find some level of encouragement as we're doing ministry. But we must be clear, those who are alive are no longer slaves to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And in understanding what Scripture is teaching here, we should probably have an appropriate concern with those whose lives are more characterized by spiritual death than spiritual life. One of the most helpful books I've ever read on the nature of conversion, and this is what we're getting at here, right? It's conversion from death over into life. 
One of the most helpful books I've read on this is Jonathan Edwards' old book, Religious Affections. And one of the things that's so helpful with this book, even though challenging and painful at times, one of the things that's so helpful is he starts with 12 signs that mean absolutely nothing. His point here isn't that they're negative signs. His point is with those things alone, you can't tell whether somebody's alive or dead. What's painful about it, for people in our context who read it, is that almost all 12 are the exact things that pastors hear sitting in somebody's living room who share their testimony of why they think they're converted. Let me just give you a few examples of his signs of nothing. He talks about an emotional experience, right? I went to youth camp. I was at an evangelistic rally. I was sitting in church under the Word of God, and, and, and the Word of God was being preached, and I just started bawling. I was so emotional. Edward says that's a sign of nothing. It could be something, but it's neutral. That in and of itself tells us nothing. He, he, he uses bodily manifestations as a sign of nothing, right? I, I was reading the Bible, and I just felt this heaviness set in. Oh, you could have had a drop in blood pressure. It, it could have been the Spirit of God working, but we need more evidence. That's his point. Another sign of nothing that he points to is this inclination to talk about spiritual things. Right? Before I went to youth camp, I never talked about the things of God. Now I can't stop. And his point is dead people talk about spiritual things all the time. Another sign of nothing is a scripture verse came to mind and made me think of God, right? I was going along, and all of a sudden I'm hit with this scripture verse, and I'm convicted, and I, that's when I was saved. It says, well, maybe, but a scripture verse can come to your mind for a lot of reasons. Again, we still just need more evidence. It talks about fervency in, in worship as a sign of nothing. You know, all could be positive? We don't know. The last two are troubling. Edwards, in his list of signs of nothing, lists a deep and profound sense of assurance. I know that 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 I am of Jesus. Edwards' point is deceived people, dead people, those in slavery are convinced they're all set. It's one of the most dangerous places a human being can be, deceived, thinking they're a Christian for all the wrong reasons. Last one I'll hit on. Other professing Christians say I'm a Christian. My mom says I'm a Christian. And his point is, your mom's not the Holy Spirit. She's just not. She's great. She's your mom. You should respect her, but she's your mom. No, see, for Edwards, and this book is so steeped in Scripture. I mean, you turn the pages and, like, Scripture's dripping out of it. For Edwards, the changed life is where it's all at. He understands from the Bible that when God's Spirit comes to dwell in us, He, he, he doesn't just pull out a rocking chair and sit back and do nothing. He causes us to be born again. He creates new life in Christ. He creates new tastes for the very things of God. He actually changes us from the inside out. Now, of course, we would all say 
This change is not under perfection. We know that. Part of this change is a daily trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But we need to be equally clear and just as quick to say, as we are quick to say that we're not perfect, we should also be just as clear that we're also not the same as we once were. Right? Listen, this is why testimonies, I'm just going to get real here. This is why testimonies of years of darkness are dangerous. I call them the yada, yada, yada years, right? We like to jump over things. I've been in pastoral ministry for 25 years. You hear these regularly. I became a Christian when I was two, six, you, you name it. I got to high school and college and yada, yada, yada. It was dark. And, it, and, and then at 35, I'm following Jesus. And it's like, praise God that you're following Jesus now. Have the biblical wherewithal to recognize that you might not have been converted until you started following Jesus. Right? It's why these years of darkness, years of sexual promiscuity, years of rebellion are hard to square with what the Bible teaches of crossing over from death over into life. Because remember, dead people live like dead people. Those born again live like those who are alive spiritually. And see, like everything else, church, we must let Scripture define and put the parameters on our categories. And this was an uphill battle for American Christianity. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, because we pioneered and we outsourced this false teaching often referred to as easy believism. This idea that you, you, you make Jesus your Savior now and somewhere down the road you make Him your Lord later. And I got to tell you, that doesn't square with what we see in the Scriptures at all. The Scriptures teach, test it yourself, Right? The Scriptures teach that dead live like the dead, and those who are alive live like they're alive. And for those here this morning who are in Christ, made alive by the Spirit of God again, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in that. And let us accept God's Word on the reality of things. And let us live our lives with Scripture as our guide, Scripture as our highest authority, helping us to recognize the world around us and how we are to engage such a world. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is true. Your Word is right. Your Word is good. Would You give us the grace to accept to embrace, to rejoice in your word for what it says, not for what we want it to say. Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, we are so grateful for your amazing grace that caused dead people, that caused slaves to live and to be free. We thank you. We praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.